0: Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, is our first reading this morning. Ezekiel chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword. Take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. Then take scales for weighing and divide the hair. One-third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city, when the days of the siege are completed. Then you shall take one-third and strike it with the sword all around the city, and one-third you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe a sword behind them. Also take a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes. Take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. But she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations, and against my statutes more than the lands which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you, and have not walked in my statutes or observed my ordinances, Nor observe the ordinances of the nations which surround you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God Behold, I, even I, am against you, and will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw and my eye will have no pity and I will not spare. One third of you will die by plague or be consumed by famine among you. One-third will fall by the sword around you, and one-third I will scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe a sword behind them. Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 to 21 is our text. Revelation 16, beginning in verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, And his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for war of the great day of God, the Almighty Behold I am coming like a thief blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame and they gather them together in the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon then the seventh bowl rather the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air And a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth, so great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please, as we look to the Lord in prayer for his blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of his holy word. Lord God, the Almighty, incline our hearts toward your testimonies, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous wondrous things from your holy law, unite our hearts to fear your name, send out now the light and truth of your Holy Spirit into our midst Let him lead us and bring us to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Last week I cited an author named H. Richard Niebuhr of perhaps uh, an author you've never heard of, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, in his work, The Kingdom of God in America, he critiqued 20th century, uh, century uh, liberalism and its, its reconstruction of the Bible's message without the ideas of God's holiness and wrath. You critique that reconstruction, that liberal reconstruction in these terms. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of a Christ without a cross. also cited from one of the many books printed by 21st century evangelical publishers, denying that the Bible teaches a God who burns with anger against sin and sinners. Cited, for example, Joel Green and Mark Baker, who write, the scriptures as a whole provide no ground for a portrait of an angry God needing to be appeased in atoning sacrifice. So in one line, God's wrath and the necessity of Christ's atoning blood is denied in an evangelical publisher. It's quite telling that these authors write that the Scripture scripture says a whole Provide no ground. And what they mean by that is that, yes, the Old Testament speaks of a God who is wrathful, but the New Testament does not. That the Old Testament God is a God of wrath and the the New Testament God is a God of love, who will not pour out wrath upon his enemies, who will not judge sin and sinners in his angry wrath. The first four bowls of wrath here in Revelation chapter 16 highlight four aspects of God's wrath that vindicate his righteous anger against sin. In the first four bowls, we discovered the holiness of a divine wrath. That voice in the beginning here in uh, of chapter 16 comes out of the sanctuary, the holy of holies. And that sanctuary has been cleared because God's glory, it was filled with smoke, it was filled with the glory cloud, it was filled with the glory of God. So uh, the only one that remains in the sanctuary, in heaven, in this vision to John, is God Himself. And so He is the one who speaks of these judgments, who brings these Uh, seven bowls of wrath, who pours out his wrath upon sin and sinners. We also saw that uh, the vengeance of divine wrath is vindicated here. God answered the prayers of of the martyrs, Revelation chapter 6. He answers the prayers of the saints lifted up from the golden altar. Uh, the golden altar of of, of incense which is a, a symbol of this the prayers of the saints ascending to God in heaven uh, and God answers those prayers and and pours out his wrath uh, in the second bull the justice of uh, God's wrath he uh, he, he vindicates himself. His, he shows in the third bowl his justice in, in judging sin. And then in the fourth bowl he shows uh, his sovereignty in wrath. All these things come from his hand. God is the one who is pouring out this wrath upon the apostate nation of Israel. Israel. The first four bowls of wrath were elements of the physical creation. Land, sea, waters, and sun. With the last three bowls, the consequences of the outpourings of wrath are more political, we can say more political in nature. In the last three bowls of wrath, God judges his instrument of wrath and gathers together ungodly forces to finish his wrath upon apostate Israel. That's what we'll see in these last three bowls of wrath. The first place we'll see in verses 10 and 11, God's judgment on the beast's kingdom In twelve through sixteen, the gathering of the kings for battle, and in seventeen to twenty-one, the final judgment on Jerusalem, God's judgment on the beast's kingdom, the gathering of the kings for battle, and the final judgment on Jerusalem. In the first place, then, in uh, the 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 fifth bull. We see God's judgment on the beast's kingdom. Although most of the judgments throughout Revelation are aimed specifically at apostate Israel, that is, first century apostate Israel, the pagan nations who join Israel against God's believing remnant among Israel comes under condemnation as well in this fifth bull. The fifth angel pours out his bull upon the throne of the beast. Just as the sun's heat scorched those who worship the beast, in the fourth bull, verses 8 and 9, so uh, the lights are turned out on the beast's kingdom in the outpouring of this fifth bull in verse 10 and it became darkened. This corresponds to uh, the ninth plague of Egypt, the darkness that came over the whole land in judgment upon uh, the nation of Egypt that held his people in bondage. Concluded from our exposition of Revelation 13 that corporately the beast symbolizes the roman empire and individually he represents the emperor nero so this fifth plague this fifth bowl of wrath has partly to do with what was going on historically in the roman empire leading up to the fall of jerusalem It corresponds with the wars, the revolutions, the riots, what the Roman historian Tacticus called worldwide convulsions that racked the Roman Empire after the Emperor Nero committed suicide in June of AD 68, AD 69, Uh, if you've ever studied the the Roman emperors, it was the year of four emperors, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian, a year in which great horrors were inflicted upon Rome and the Romans in the civil wars in the empire. The plague that is now poured out upon the beast, uh, the plague that is now poured out on... Uh, the empire that is the instrument of God's judgment on his apostate people, Israel, is described in similar terms to the, the loathsome and malignant sores of the first plague in chapter 16 and verse 2, the first bull of wrath. They gnawed on their tongues because of pain. Verse 10 they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains. And their souls. Verse 11. As the fourth plague does in verse 9, the fifth plague draws attention in verse 11 to the impenitence of those who blaspheme God. They did not repent of their deeds. Suffering, we know from Scripture, produces godliness in the righteous. Suffering is a blessing to the righteous. All things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. But suffering only serves to harden the hearts, to further harden the hearts of blasphemers, to, to turn their hearts further away from God in in blasphemy against him in in impenitence against the holy God. Recently in our evening exposition of 2 Kings, we saw that Jehu was Jehovah's instrument of judgment upon the idolatrous northern kingdom of Israel. And Jehu himself, once he had carried out his role as an instrument of God's vengeance upon the northern king of Israel was himself judged. In the fifth bowl of wrath, Rome, God's instrument of judgment on apostate Israel is judged for its wickedness in carrying out its role as an instrument of God's judgment. That's the way things work in both Old Testament theology and New Testament theology as well. In verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl We see here the gathering of kings for battle in verses 12 through 16. The Euphrates River first appeared in John's visions in connection with the sixth trumpet, chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. There was, if you will remember, a restraining boundary, holding back impending judgment until at the command that Uh, came, the voice came from the golden altar. At that command, the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates were released and a demon army of 200 million strong swept across the dry riverbed of the Euphrates to kill a third of mankind. In biblical history... The Euphrates is identified with regions to the north and to the east from which Judah's captors, Assyria and Babylon, had come. The prophets predict that God will dry up the Euphrates, exposing Babylon to attack from forces even further north. So again, God's oppressor, Babylon, is going to be judged uh, in uh, being overcome by an, another nation from the north whose leader is King Cyrus. And he will lead his Persian armies, uh, Isaiah 46, 11 says, as a bird of prey from the east. And when he comes upon Babylon, his way will have been cleared by the Lord. Isaiah 44, verses 27 to 28 says, It, it is I who says to the depth of the sea, Be dried up, and, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. The drying up of the Red Sea, you remember, made uh, Israel's escape from Egypt uh, possible. It's God who uh, who dried up uh, the Red Sea, and, and made a path for Israel's liberation out of, out of Egypt. Exodus 14, and the drying up of the Jordan River opened the way of conquest for the land. And the tragic irony of the sixth bull of wrath is that the drying up of the Euphrates that John now sees In that that symbolic action here, uh, in Revelation chapter 16, Israel has become the new Babylon. An enemy of God that must now be conquered by a new Cyrus. The coming of the armies of the Euphrates likely represents the return of The Roman general Titus with his armies to besiege Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus records that thousands of these troops came from the region of the Euphrates River in the east. Here in this outpouring of uh, the vision of the outpouring of the sixth bull. In verse 13, John next sees three unclean spirits proceeding out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now we know who these three entities are. We know that the dragon is, the the great red dragon is Satan himself, uh, that the beast is the Roman Empire, and Uh, The false prophet represents the false teachers of Israel, the false teachers who led Israel into apostasy. A connection with the the second Egyptian plague is established here. Remember, a, a multitude of frogs... Uh, infested Egypt, and they came up from where? They came up from the river. Exodus chapter 8. But these frogs, the frogs of John's vision, symbolize spirits of demons performing signs in order to deceive mankind. Verse 14. There's already been an an emphasis on the destructive evil that spews out of the dragon's mouth like uh, water, like a river to, to destroy the church. Chapter 12 and verse 15. Blasphemies against God and his people. Chapter 13 and verse 16. And now this triple, triple emphasis here in, uh, in chapter 16 and verse 13 on what comes out of the mouths of the the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. These unclean spirits from Satan, the Roman government, and the false religious leaders of Israel go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together, verse 14 says, for the war of that great day of God. A biblical term used by the Old Testament prophets Isaiah, Joel, Amos, and Zephaniah for a great day of judgment upon the wicked. And specifically, this was to be a day of Israel's condemnation. Uh, The day, as Jesus uh, foretold in his parable, when the king would send his armies to destroy the murderers and set their city on fire, Matthew 22, verse 7. By their false prophecies and miraculous works, the unclean spirits incite the armies of the world to join together in war against God. What they don't realize is that the battle is the Lord's and that the armies are being brought to fulfill God's purposes, not their own. John underscores this in verse 14 by referring to the Lord as God the Almighty. The Greek equivalent of the Hebrew expression, Lord Sabaoth. God of hosts, the Lord of armies of heaven and earth. Micaiah, the prophet, gave a, a similar message to King Ahab, a similar message to the one that's being given to John here in this, in this vision of uh, the sixth bull came through the prophet Micaiah in his message to King Ahab of Israel, 2 Kings 22, verses 19 to 22, explaining how the Lord would bring about Ahab's demise through the mouths of the lying prophets by putting a, decei- a deceiving spirit in the mouths of Of Ahab's false prophets. So here in Revelation, the armies of the kings of the whole world, that's how they're being represented here, how they're being symbolized, are gathered by demon frogs of the unclean spirits as God's armies to bring about apostate Israel's destruction for the glory of God. But the voice of Christ, verse 15, interrupts the narrative. It's perhaps in parentheses in uh, in your English translations. Saying, Behold, I am coming like a thief. This summarizes the warnings that Jesus gives in the letters to the seven churches, chapter 2 and verse 5, 16 and 25, chapter 3, verse 3 and 11, in two of which, you remember, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. It's significant, both these references that Jesus is coming quickly and that he's coming like a thief uh, which he, uh, which is the the specific reference here uh, in the letter to Sardis, chapter three and verse three of Revelation, where he says, "I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I have come to you." So in the letters to the seven churches, we said in in our exposition of those letters that. Uh, the warnings of judgment that, that Jesus is speaking about and his comings are near-term judgments, not long-term, uh, long-term judgments. That so Jesus isn't speaking about some judgment way out in the future. He's speaking about something uh, that would happen in the lifetime of, those, uh, of that generation, the generation in which these seven churches uh, exist. And in the generation of, uh, the, 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 of the nation of Israel, uh, in the first century, uh, which Jesus makes clear in uh, the Olivet Discourse of Matthew twenty-four, uh, we said in our exposition uh, of that uh, significant chapter as it relates to the uh, to the book of Revelation, and so now uh, we see these judgments, uh, the judgment of Christ uh, coming. I am coming, Jesus says. He's, he's making a reference to of the judgment that will soon come upon apostate Israel. And in the letter to Laodicea, Jesus says, chapter 3, verse 18, I advise you to buy from me white garments that you may clothe yourselves, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And now here in Revelation third beatitude, chapter 16 and verse 15, he expresses a similar sentiment. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. So there's been an interruption in the vision, an interruption in in, uh, the narrative of the vision, and now uh, as the narrative resumes in verse 16, the demons are said to gather kings to the place which in Hebrew is called har often re- rendered Armageddon in English, which is uh, the battle of Armageddon is, uh, receives much attention in treatments of the book of Revelation. Some see this uh, as a great battle that's going to take place sometime in the distant future. Um, Others see it uh, uh, as a a symbol of uh, the collection of worldly forces against God that are uh, coming up in battle against God. Um, I think it's more simple than that. Harmageddon in Hebrew means Mount of Megiddo. And John clearly wants his readers to note its Hebrew meaning. He tells us that here in verse 16 they gathered themselves together in the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. So he wants us to think about what is represented in the Old Testament. Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. What does uh, what does Har Megiddo? What does uh, the Mount of Megiddo? What would that represent in uh, the Old Testament scriptures? And as it turns out, the uh, the Plain of Megiddo was the site of several Old Testament battles several significant old testament battles it's listed among the conquests of Joshua Joshua 12:21 Deborah defeated the kings of Canaan at Mount at, at the plain of Megiddo Judges 5:19 there king Joshua went to war against the king of Egypt and was killed 2 Kings 23:29 So it's not surprising to find this plain located about a two days walk from uh, Jerusalem to the northeast used in Revelation as a symbol of a battlefield. But there would have been a mental conflict evoked in the mind of the reader of, of Revelation. Now we're not that familiar with uh, the land of Palestine, uh, the the uh, geography of Palestine, but those reading it in the first century, first century Israel, uh, reading Revelation or, or hearing Revelation read, would have to the, to their minds this would have represented a conflict because there was no mountain associated with the plain of Megiddo. The mountain that's likely being referred here to here is Mount Zion, to Jerusalem itself. That Mount Megiddo is simply looking forward to what we're going to see in the seventh bowl, the seventh bowl of wrath, as it's poured out upon Babylon. that is, upon Jerusalem. And we're seeing symbolized here What's leading and what's this is leading us up to is uh, not the idea that there's going to be this gathering of, of nations uh, in a battle against God at the end of time, but the battle that's going to take place in the in the final siege of Jerusalem as the seventh bull is poured out. Old Testament prophecy pictured the gathering of the nations for war against his people, not on the plain of Megiddo, but at Jerusalem. Zechariah 12, verse 3. It will come about on that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Zechariah 14, verse 2, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. In the Old Testament, the mount of assembly is Mount Zion. And so the king's being gathered at Har Megiddo. The Mount of Megiddo represents this great and final outpouring of the seventh bowl of wrath, to which we come now in verses 17 to 21, the final judgment of uh, on Jerusalem. As we come to verse 17, the angel pours out the seventh bowl upon the air. It's quite interesting, quite striking, actually, that the uh, the bowl as is poured out upon the air, possibly because uh, the air is Satan's domain. The prince of the power of the air, he's called in Ephesians two, verse two. But more likely, it's because that's the domain in which the flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, verse eighteen, and the huge hailstones of lethal weight are produced, verse twenty-one. Again, a loud voice comes from heaven, comes from the sanctuary of heaven, the place that's the the Holy of Holies in heaven, uh, the antitype, the original of the type of uh, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. And that's been cleared out. The holy place in heaven has been cleared out by uh, the glory of God, and so God's voice itself comes. Uh, there's a, a loud voice, and there was uh, we fought, we have these flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, uh, and that loud voice says, "It is done." Just as as uh, just as we read in in chapter 15 that in these Seven bowls, the wrath of God is finished. Here, God says, it is done. And again, this is not a reference to the last day, uh, the second coming of Christ, but rather the last in the sequence of judgments in the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of wrath. The earlier sequences uh, were limited this outpouring of God in uh, the final bowls of wrath and this final bowl of wrath in the seventh bowl these are unlimited God's destructive forces are going to come against apostate Jerusalem and Israel is going to be judged for her sin. The precedent for this phenomena in the sky is the seventh plague in Egypt. We've seen these the, the connections between the the ten plagues of Egypt and these seven bowls of wrath, and and of course in in that in that plague upon Egypt, in the seventh plague, death was inflicted on man and beast. Uh, when hailstones fell from the heavens, accompanied by thunder and lightning. Remember, too, that the Lord descended from Mount Sinai to deliver his law to Moses in the midst of a storm cloud full of flashing lightning and a roar of thunder, Exodus 19, verse 16. Lightning, thunder, and other awe-producing sounds have accompanied John's visions in his heavenly court throughout the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 5. Chapter 11, verse 19. Seven times in Revelation, an earthquake is mentioned. Chapter 6 and verse 12. Chapter 8 and verse 5. Chapter 11, 3. Twice in chapter 11, 19 twice, uh, rather in 11.3 it's twice, then in 11.19, then twice here in chapter 16 and uh, verse 18. And here it's a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. So we read this morning about uh, in, in Ezekiel chapter 5, we read about judgment coming upon uh, Jerusalem, the judgment that God was going to bring about uh, Jerusalem. And we read in the Old Testament Scriptures about many judgments that, uh, that God brings upon uh, Israel for their apostasy, for their idolatry. And these are just rumblings of the lightning and the thunder and the earthquakes and the awe-producing sounds that have come out in the history of redemption against God's people for their rebellion against him. And now, a great earthquake Such as there had not been since man came to be upon earth, so great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. This is the final judgment. Upon the Israelites who had rejected the Messiah, persecuted those who believed in the Messiah, and God is pouring out his judgment on the nation of Israel. As so we, we've seen, the great city, chapter 16, verse 19, is Jerusalem, which in Revelation 11, verse 8 mystic- is mystically called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified, also called Babylon the Great, chapter 14 and verse 8, who has made all the nations drink of the wine, of the passion, of her immorality. Here in chapter 16 and verse 19, Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of his fierce wrath. Israel was uh, uh, originally intended, Jerusalem was originally intended to be a city on a hill, a light of the world, and now is an apostate condemned to perish. Under the judgment of the seventh bull, Jerusalem was split into three parts, verse 19 says. And that imagery is drawn from that fifth chapter of Ezekiel that we read this morning, which instructs the prophet to stage a drama, as God so often did in in, uh, the life of the prophets, especially uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to stage a drama where he would take a sword, a sharp sword, and, and cut off his hair and his beard and divide it into three parts. And the Lord told him to burn one third in the fire in the center of the city, to strike one third with the sword all around the city, to scatter one third to the wind, to show that one third of his apostate, idolatrous people would die by a plague or famine, one third would fall by the sword, and one third would be scattered to the wind with the sword chasing them to Destroy them. Another indication that the great city here in uh, verse 19 is indeed Jerusalem is the fact that the vision to John distinguishes her from the cities of the nations or the cities, we could translate this, of the Gentiles, which fell with her. Jerusalem remember, is the city of priests. Jerusalem is, uh, has been made a kingdom of priests to her God, and the sacrifices uh, and prayers of uh, Israel went out for all the nations of the world. Uh, you see in the Psalms that all of the nations were uh, called to worship the Lord. And so here uh, we see in verse 19 that the cities of the nations fell. When Jerusalem fell, the cities of the nations fell. When a Jerusalem fell, the, the place where uh, sacrifices were made and prayers were offered for the cities of all the nations of the earth, those cities as well would fall. Covenantally, Jerusalem represents all the cities of the world. And so in the climactic judgment upon Israel, symbolized by this seventh bowl of wrath, this final judgment that comes upon Israel which you remember Jesus there in the Olivet Discourse of of Matthew 24 gives signs by which uh, God's remnant in, in Israel, God's remnant in Jerusalem would know that they were to flee from the wrath that was to come. When that wrath does come, there's no place to hide. When that judgment, this climactic judgment comes, uh, when the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out, every false refuge disappears. The mountains and rocks can no longer hide the wicked from the face of Him who sits on the throne in the wrath of the Lamb. Chapter 6, verse 16. Now in verse 20, in chapter 16, every island fled away and the mountains were not found. The the, the islands and the mountains here symbolize every false refuge that the wicked erect to try to convince themselves that there is no such thing as judgment. That God does not see, that God does not hear their blasphemies, the blasphemies that they pour out of their mouths to convince themselves that divine judgment is not a reality. I'll never forget. standing in Cambridge, England. And there was uh, a soapbox evangelist, a man standing in the marketplace in Cambridge, uh, evangelizing. Uh, We later learned that as we spoke to this uh, man that he uh, he was in the United States Air Force attached to one of the bases close to Cambridge. And he was... Preaching the gospel very clearly and preaching God's judgment. And a heckler uh, in the crowd, an, an Englishman, said to him, I know what's going to happen when I die. When I die, I'm going to the worms, I'll be buried in the ground, and that's it. That's all there is. There's no judgment, he said. That's what's being represented here. Everyone who denies. Everyone who pushes this idea that there will be a final judgment, an eternal judgment against all those who have rebelled against God. And that man was, is, was doing precisely... What we find being done here in these, in the final verse, here in our text, verse 21 and men blaspheme God because of the plague of hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Hundred pound hailstones are falling from heaven, and still men blaspheme God. It shows us how deeply entrenched unbelief is in the heart of men and women, and even boys and girls. Their hearts are incapable of repentance. Only God's Spirit, applying the gospel of grace, can turn a stony heart into a heart of flesh that beats with spiritual blood. We have to remember that. We have to remember that as we speak to others about the gospel. The bold judgments have shown us God's patience with apostate and idolatrous Israel has run out. Just as his patience with all impenitent sinners will one day run out as Paul proclaimed in his sermon on Mars Hill, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. There the apostle says that God, having overlooked the times of ignorance, is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That day is coming. That day, the the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory with all of his angels, when the trumpets of God will sound, it's coming, but it's not yet. Christ's followers, we today live in the gap between the promise of the coming of that day and the reality of its coming. And that means we endure affliction as long as the church remains on earth, as long as Christ is pleased, as long as God is pleased to withhold his wrath. The church must patiently endure affliction because that's what the Bible tells us that we will do. We'll suffer affliction and we'll long for justice. We'll suffer affliction and we will cry for the avenging God to pour out that justice upon His enemies. Or at least we ought to. If we believe what the Bible says about God's wrath. Indicated in these seven bulls of wrath in Revelation. But the existence of that gap, despite the fact that it prolongs our pain, is good news for unbelievers as long as God tarries. God's common grace. Or, if you prefer, his non-saving favor. Even on the most hardened, arrogant sinners. Shields them from destruction that is rebellion's inevitable consequence. He sends his reign both on the just and the unjust. Bearing witness to his majesty and his Generosity by giving his fruitful harvests even to those who offer thanks for these harvests to the gods of the fantasies of their own minds. Matthew five forty five and Acts fourteen verses fifteen to seventeen. And God's kindness, His non saving favor to those who yet remain in rebellion against him, is designed to draw his chosen ones out of their idolatries and into repentance from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the great red dragon and the beast, into the marvelous and glorious kingdom of heaven itself. This very purpose God's purpose to bring His own to repentance explains His forbearance, explains why God tarries, explains why the Lord Jesus tarries and and doesn't come again. Though many mistake it for His tardiness or, worse yet, a complete failure, of his promises. Peter observes in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 4 to 9. That's where we live. We live in that gap. Between the promise of the ultimate judgment. The last day. The day of the Lord. Uh, the day that all of these Temporal judgments are pointing us to, and the promise that God gives us of that final judgment. And God will close that gap. He will close the gap between promise and reality for His own true children. Precisely when he closes the gap between the the promise that he's going to give to Satan and the reality of that final judgment before that final judgment is poured out on an unrepentant world. And until then, what these seven bulls, Teach us to do. What the wrath of God finished upon apostate Israel teaches us to do is to hold fast to the testimony of Jesus and to hold forth the testimony. Of Jesus, and if these seven bowls of wrath have taught us anything, they've taught us that preaching judgment, testifying of God's judgment upon the world, is an essential component of the gospel message that we are called to bear as His people. The testimony of Jesus, who himself endured God's wrath. Who himself, as an atonement for sin, took on the wrath of God, poured out upon the, for the sins of the whole world. Who drained the cup of wrath. Suffering in the place of all who turn from sin and who look to Jesus by faith. If the seven bowls of wrath don't convince the unbelieving hearer that they must flee from the wrath of God and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, nothing will and dear Christians, nothing will enable the hardened heart to receive the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ except the Spirit of God who turns stony hearts into hearts of flesh, beating with spiritual blood. And that means, uh, dear Christians, we must not only speak We must not only open our mouths in a word of testimony to our Lord Jesus Christ, but we must plead for those who yet remain in sin that they might flee to the mercy seat of heaven itself to be saved from the eternal destruction that God will finally pour out On the last day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. We praise you. For your wrath. We praise you for the holiness of your wrath. For the vengeance of your wrath. For the justice of your wrath. For the sovereignty of your wrath. And we rejoice, O oh God, that you are pleased to pour your wrath out upon your enemies, those who remain, who stubbornly remain in their impenitence in rebellion against you and against your Son, Jesus Christ. Teach us, O oh God, not to turn away in revulsion from the manifestations of your wrath against idolaters and apostates. Teach us to embrace them. Teach us, O God, as we see these warnings, to recognize them as warnings to be, uh, to persevere in the faith. and Enable us, O God, To do so. Enable us to hold fast to the testimony of the Lamb. Enable us to hold forth the testimony of Jesus and to warn those who blaspheme God to flee from the wrath that is to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.